Hello, and welcome to the Stop Devaluation Podcast. I'm your host and founder of the Stop Devaluation Movement, Melody Hilton. The heart of this movement is to see the value in all of humanity and live courageous lifestyles of using our power for good instead of harm. We can affect change by choosing validation over judgment, and I hope you'll take your place and make a positive impact in this world. Gaining knowledge and the wisdom to apply that knowledge empowers us to compassionately be a voice of validation to those hurting from racial prejudice. If you desire to understand a race or a culture, then it is so important to know the historical facts which support a collaborative voice of healing to our world. Lewis Dickens reveals the painful black history and solutions for healing. If you are a white person, and genuinely care, you must hear this interview. Lewis and I have partnered together and modeled diversity and inclusion on a deep heart level for almost 20 years. This is an interview you do not want to miss. Welcome everyone to the Culture of Validation interview with Lewis Dickens. Lewis, I am so excited to have you a part of the Stop Devaluation Movement today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, I have known you for years, and we've partnered together in so many ways at Baby Boomer, and I believe you're a Gen Xer, or are you a millennial? I'm not yeah. sure. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. you know, black and white, young, old, whatever yeah. it is, but both of us carry a strong heart and passion to confront prejudice and injustice in our world. And you are a black American living in Ghana, West Africa, and you have traveled the globe. You've celebrated different (laughs) cultures, races, ethnicities. And what have you learned about prejudice, bias, assumption, and stereotypes? You know, what I've learned, and I will just apply it to my own life. I'll just give my own experience rather is that um, prejudice at times comes from a, from ignorance, which is lack of knowledge. Yes. And um, so I, what I've learned is when I went to um, another country and, and had to learn another culture and adapt in another cultural setting, um, the more information, the more knowledge I got on the culture, the more um, history, the, you know, just the more facts, it helped to give me a, a knowledge that balanced me out and yes. balanced, you know, my opinions and my thoughts and, um, you know, even my responses. Sometimes it's like we can build ourselves up in knowledge, but there's no application of that knowledge. And I think that especially culturally, once we, um, you know, have, have dug and we've gotten the history, we've gotten facts, we've, we've gotten information on on. A, a, another culture or, you know, another cultural situation, then now there's a, there should be a responsibility for us when we engage that culture to apply the knowledge that we have. And I don't mean in an awkward way and saying things that we shouldn't. I, I just believe it should become a part of our mental database and a part of the, the way that we move and the way that we respond and the way that we navigate. Um, so that's, 
some of what I've learned um, in, in dealing with other cultures. It's true because through knowledge and wisdom, the application of that knowledge, prejudice, bias, assumptions, stereotypes, that flies out the window because now I have understanding and I have empathy and I want to be a part of validating others. Right. So right now in our nation, uh, the United States, racial tension has risen to the forefront once again after the horrific abuse of power of that police officer. Do you believe that our nation has not made any headway in confronting prejudice and racism? Or do you believe it was just pushed down temporarily just to rise again? I believe both, actually. I, I believe that we have made headway. Um, you know, there have definitely been efforts uh, from many um, on, I believe, all sides of the coin um, to to deal with racism, um, to explore racism. But then secondly, um, I believe there's a, another whole uh, aspect of it that has been pushed down. And so we're sort of you know, now having to deal with the elephant in the room because mm. there's no more space to hide in. You know what I mean? Yeah. We've, we've pushed him down as, as, as far as we can push him. And, 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 and the elephant is not something that you can easily hide. So um, at some point, um, he's going to show up. Yes. And um, I, I think we're in a place right now where the, the elephant is, is showing up. So do you believe that prejudice is woven systemically into our culture? And if you believe that, how do we continue to pull that thread from the fabric of our nation? I believe it's woven systemically um, in culture, but I believe it also um, is, is formed by individual incidents. Like something happens to me, mm -hmm. and in, in, instead of me seeing it as, a, as an in, a general injustice, I see it as a racial injustice. Um, I, I believe that things have happened like that, you know, whereas, um, you know, maybe someone has had a, a certain encounter with a, with a white person or a black person or a Mexican, and, you know, they encountered a, a rude person. And instead of them, you know, identifying this person as a rude person, they identify it, this is a, a rude black person, and this is who black people are, or this is a rude Mexican, and, and this is who Mexicans are, and this is, you know, what, who, whatever race has been come in, in position to do and, and, and we use these generalizations yeah. and, it, and it forms something because we tell our wives and then we tell our children and, and then you know our children tell their children and then you know again you have this systemic you know perpetuation of something that could have even been a lie in the first place. Maybe, maybe even the person that you encountered was a good person that had a bad day but now you've judged a whole race yeah. of people based upon your individual encounter. So I, I really believe that it's both. It, it goes both ways. So I know that you have studied a lot of history. Uh, could you give us yeah. some uh, information that you believe would help us cross those great divides? Yes, and, and I will say this, that... Um, me living, you mentioned earlier that I, I lived in uh, Ghana, West Africa, and I was originally born in North Carolina and um, born to African-American parents um, who, of course, came to America via slavery. And so I, I came to Ghana to um, 
to found a human rights organization um, that rescues children from, you know, child trafficking mm-hmm. and other forms of exploitation. But in living here, um, I learned a very valuable lesson, you know, that at times to, again, understand um, people and understand their culture, you cannot view it through the lens of your own culture. Mm-hmm. Or your, your, and when I say your own culture, I'm talking about individually, every family has their own culture that's just the fam- the culture in their particular household. Mm-hmm. But then there's a greater culture. There's a culture within your ethnicity. Maybe you're Scottish or Irish or African or Jamaican or whatever, you know. So there are cultural, you know, filters and cultural epithets within that. And so it's, it's best that when you're trying to understand someone who is completely unrelated to your culture, that you research them and, and, and you, you do the proper research to understand where they came from. And even there could be certain things like there was something, um, you know, in, in the Ghanaian culture that I didn't understand. And it was something that I, that, that would always be in commercials and always be in movies and, and I, you know, and I had a quote unquote, um, you know, my perspective was based upon my personal culture, mm. my uh, personal religious culture, my personal culture in my home, my personal culture, my, even my American culture, cu- cultural influences. And so, but as I did the research on the history of why they believe that and why this, you know, particular subject was so strong and prevalent in media, I I realized that it was not what I thought. And so getting back to to your question, I think it's it's really good when you really want to understand another culture to do the proper research and and understand the origins and and why they believe the way that they do and and why they, you know, think and why they tick the way that they, they tick, if, if that makes sense. And so um, some of the things like um, in African-American culture, of course, many of us um, have been, you know, are still, this is 2020, we still have roots and we have connections to, to the slave trade. And many people will say, well, why is that? Slavery ended and I think it was 1863, if um, I could be wrong, but I think it was 18, around 1863. And, you know, so no actual perpetrators of slavery, the buyers or the sellers or, or the perpetrators of the violence or abuse or exploitation are alive. Um, but again, as, as we talk about racism being systemic and something that's passed down, the effects of um, such atrocities, they affect you. you know? You know, um, even psychologically, um, the, the effects, the long-term effects of um, PTSD, the long-term effects of certain abuses and um, uh, sexual abuse and physical abuse and, and certain types of trauma, you know, it, it, it affects your children. It affects your children's children. It, it affects the way that you, you, you think about things. It affects yeah. the way that you even see the, the, the world at large. And so I, I believe it's important that we understand that. And when you look at um, slavery, um, you know, slavery people were trafficked. Humans were trafficked from Africa. They were trafficked from Africa unwillingly. And um, when you go into African history here, I, I live 
in Ghana here, and we were one of the uh, major ports of slavery. When you go to the slave castle, what you'll find out is that um, the Europeans who who traded slaves, um, you know, they, they when they came to the chiefs to get people initially, I want to talk about the initial phase. Initial phase of slavery was a negotiation between chiefs um, concerning um, people, concerning human beings. Mm. And when they initially came, at that point, um, Africans were constantly coming back and forth, traveling from Europe and other places. And they were um, traveling there, and they there was a, a, I think I'm saying the right term, but I think it was a sort of like an indentured servanthood. And in, in that particular agreement, you would work for a period of time, and then in that after the, that period of time, you would own a parcel, you would own your own land. And so you would be able to build there, you would be able to establish there. Nobody owned you, the state didn't own you, um, the, the people who brought you did not own you. After you fulfilled your work agreement, you were able to do that. So prior, so at that point in time, which I, I think you're talking about around 1493 or so, you um, there was no um, understanding at all at, at, as to the type of slavery involved in the transatlantic slavery, where you know people are going into a ship and they're going to be chained down and and like literal sardines. Um, there were even I even have records of whole you know thirty over thirty pages of just children on ships. No adults, just children wow. on ships who were who were transported um, to um, the Americas uh, without parents. So, if you can imagine the the trauma mm. that that would be felt for a, a child that's you know number one being kidnapped, number two being chained down, number three going through physical and sexual abuse, number four, you know, the, the conditions were so horrific. If, if, if you look it up the way that they were positioned, it was so horrific. People were dying all the time. So someone could be chained to you and and you would literally, um, you know, they could die and be connected to you. And so, you know, all sorts of body fluids and so many different things are taking place. This was a very scary event, not wow. just for the children, but for the adults as well. And so imagine that long-term effect, those of you who are, you know, study psychology, if you see, you know, the, the effects of trauma yes. for just a person who has been human trafficked, just, you know, just human trafficked from one state to the next, then you see it's long-term trauma yes. and it's long-term effects unless you really get um, proper therapy. But imagine these kids on this long um, journey to, to, to the Americas and then you're, you're sold um, to uh, you don't have parents. You know, you're dealing with people you've never seen. You're dealing with land you've never seen, diseases you've never seen. And then you come into a place where, you know, it's brutal. You know, people wear shackles. People wear chains. If, if you are um, disobedient, you are beat with, um, with strong leather hook um, whips. If you, um, are, you know, are disobedient, you are boiled <sighs> in front of everyone. Um, if you are a, um, a male who has tr attempted to run away, you, excuse me for saying this, you're brutally raped in front of your children, especially your sons. 
because they wanted to make a statement to the son that if you do this, this is what will happen to you. You know, and just very demeaning, uh, dehumanizing, um, demoralizing events. I mean, when you... Uh, you're at the slave block and, and you're half naked, you know, and excuse me for saying, you know, men can can touch women and, and you know, even men would be touched or, or be exposed, you know, um, that have to have their genitals exposed because it, it literally is a meat market. And they're also, and that's another part of slavery. When we talk about things that are systemic, um, when you can consider that, Maybe a, a male, an adult male, is married to whomever he's chosen to be his wife, but he doesn't have the right to be faithful to her because the in the plantation he needs to breed with the other women to keep up the production of human beings. Wow. Because that was also a part of of the business is is actual breeding. So if you can imagine being a man and not even having the right to say, I don't want to have sex with someone or be a man and, and a woman. And there's no sanctity in marriage, you know, from a sexual standpoint, because at any time the man can be commanded to sleep with any woman on the uh, plantation. And at any time the slave masters can um, have sex with the wife, with your wife and even produce a child. And there's nothing that you can do about it. And so if you can look at that emotionally, the, the lines that are broken down emotionally in the family that affects you, yeah. that affects you. you, you go generations where, you know, uh, and because what that does is it causes you, the, the, the brain, you know, is designed to, um, as it were, protect us from, from things that are too overwhelming for, uh, emotionally for us. And so when we get in a situation where the trauma is too intense, then the brain comes in and says, okay, you know, I'm going to come in and, you know, I'm going to cause you to detach in this situation. Yeah. I'm going to cause you to emotionally detach so that you can survive, yeah. so that you can continue to survive. Well, that emotional detachment is being passed down. Now you have a generation of, of another generation of a man who may not be in slavery, but there's no uh, emo there's no proper emotional attachment mm -hmm. to the wife because for generations you know my my male ancestors could not emotionally detach because they had to have sex with so many women and they had to be open to the master having sex with their wife and even producing children they had to be okay with it wow my goodness and this is so horrific. And, you know, I understand what you are saying in the fact that, you know, I was molested from the time I was two years old to nine years old. And I know how that affected my life. So when you look at this horrific injustice, this horrific abuse of power and how people were treated, and then from generation to generation, it's almost like a cellular memory. It's like woven into That's the it. DNA. And That's it's it. like sometimes I think... Uh, an individual can be facing things and not even know why they're facing that or feeling That's that it. or responding certain ways. And it can lock people into ways of thinking and feeling, and they don't even know what the source of that is. Yeah. And lives are hurting and people are writhing in pain. And so with all that you've said, 
I think just giving this information brings so much understanding, but what are some solutions now to impact contemporary society to, to cause, uh, you know, white races or different races to be able to understand what the African-Americans have experienced, but then also the healing for the black community? Oh, you know, I want to go back to a place because, you know, sometimes when we hear things like that, we'll say, well, slavery is so far, we're so far removed from that, you know, and many of us, you know, are just not even generationally in any way can, can sort of, um, you know, see ourselves connecting with that time frame. And so it makes it abstract that those things would still affect us. But then, um, if you look at it, when you go beyond slavery, um, you had, I think it's the 13th Amendment that allows, um, that allowed for African Americans after slavery, if you were, um, you know, if, if you broke a law, that you could be put back in, in prison. But in, in that prison situation, it, it was literally the way that it reads, you then um, legally could be a slave to the state. And so they would be able to make money off of you. And wow. so there's been major injustice in, in, in that realm from that point till present, okay? And then um, if you look at, you know, the Jim Crow rules, yeah. the, you know, uh, it's very interesting when you look at the difference between um, African-American slaves and Caribbean slaves. After uh, slavery in the Caribbean, um, the Caribbeans basically were able to possess their, um, their land. They were able to, to, be, um, to lead the government. Um, they basically were able to take back hold of those countries. You know, even though they were originally from Africa, they were given this space of time to heal and to, um, you know, and, and to be able to become independent of, you know, their colonizers and, and their slave masters and all of that. But the interesting thing in America is that we did, we were not given that, that opportunity to really heal because after mm-hmm. slavery, you know, it was constantly reinforced that mm-hmm. you are inferior. You know, Jim Crow laws is you will eat, you will go to the black bathroom. You will, you will not mm-hmm. be able to eat in the restaurant. You'll eat from the back door. Um, you'll not be able to drink from a white water fountain. You'll be able to drink from a black water fountain. And you, you can't walk on the same side of the road. So there is a continual mental conditioning, of, you know, from for many years that you are inferior and that you're, you came here as a slave. And because of that, there is a subservient place that belongs to you in society. And, and so, and I'm, I'm coming to the question. Um, and so then we bring it back up to even like say sixties and seventies. Um, there were curfews in the, uh, in a lot of the Southern cities, um, for, for black people. And, but in those same Southern cities, I give you an example that something that my mother told me about, um, that there would not be curfew for, for whites. And so white men could come to the um, black side of town and they, excuse me for saying it like this, but they could sleep with your wife, your daughter, your, your auntie, your sister, whomever. And if you tried to report it, you would be killed 
in 24 hours. And the domestic terroristic groups like the KKK and these types of people would come and they would enforce again this inferiority. And, and, and they're enforcing it, you know, with tyranny because at, at, when a person was lynched in those days, they were lynched naked and they were lynched in a public place. So if you can imagine you're coming from school and there's your father hanging naked, he's dead, everybody can see him. Your, your wife is, is, is seeing you, there's no honor. And so these things continue to perpetuate a, a mentality that have, have brought us to some of the pain. And as you said, the cellular memory um, that many feel and, and the knee jerk reaction wherein that sometimes people who have never been disconnected to a thing because of what their ancestors went through, they immediately shift into a, 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 a into a gear of defensiveness and, and war and every um, nation in, in history when there was injustice there came a time where those who were being in um, injustice rose up and, and, and they rose up to take a stand. They could not, they could not take it anymore. And it, it came to a place where it's like, of course, we understand fight or flight, but they had to fight to, 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 to say we can't take this anymore. So that's brought us up to where we are now. And I, I believe that solutions, um, one solution is, is, of course, education. I think education is so important. Education is important. Um, for any of us trying to understand each other. And I believe that education should not be just directed at we're going to just uh, understand black people. I think it's, it should be directed holistically that we all need to understand each other because also it's a fallacy to believe that every single European person or person of European descent or a or, or white person was involved with slavery. They were not. Many people could not, many people's ancestors were never involved in the slave trade. Many people's ancestors were um, were actually abolitionists. Yes. Many people's ancestors were actually people who aided in the uh, in the underground railroad, who funded the underground railroad. Um, Martin Luther King's um, ministry and his um, his social justice um, endeavors were funded by lots of Caucasian people, lots of white people. He had white lawyers. You know, th there were so many Europeans who, number one, helped in the abolishment of slavery, um, helped rescue slaves before the abolishment, and walked arm in arm with civil rights leaders who were civil rights leaders. Some even were massacred. Some were hanged. Some were lynched. You know, so many different things um, for the cause of civil rights as well. So I think these aspects of history are very important for us all to understand. We have to understand why, you know, at, at times, you know, even Asians feel, um, you know, mistreated and, and, and under, undercut it and, and, and all of that. But we go back and we understand that Asians were brought here. They tried to even make Asians slaves. Um, but for whatever reason, it didn't work out for them economically. They brought Asian men to work on the railroads. And these people were mistreated. And they were not even allowed to marry um, who they wanted to marry. The men were only allowed to marry black women because they were considered to be um, under the standard of white women. 
And so these are parts of American history that I think we have to understand so that we can understand each other. And then we, we, we um, come up with solutions and strategies so that we are not placed in bondage by the past, but we're rather empowered by the past yes. because all of us have a past. Yes. And, and if we all trace our past, there is some sort of injustice. There's some sort of evil. There's some, it, it's not possible to, to be a human being and to not to be connected to injustice or evil or folly of some kind. And so I think in, in developing solutions, um, we have to look at it that way. And um, another thing I think is important um, for solutions is not just looking into, not just history, you know, um, familiarizing ourselves with history, but also familiarizing ourselves with identity. I think in, in this season, um, mentorship is, is very good so that we can um, understand um, culture, um, being put in places where we do uh, teams and group settings, um, where we can troubleshoot and we can learn to appreciate our differences and, um, you know, not feel like, you know, that I'm superior because of this or, you know, I'm inferior because of this, but yeah. see, you, you're, you have a strength in this, I have a weakness in this, you know, my strength um, balances out your weakness, your strength balances out my weakness. I think a lot of these things um, are really important that, that from a very um, young um, age that we begin to um, promote diversity and not just suppression. You know, I, I think a part of that sleeping racism is because for seasons we just suppressed it and said, listen, you don't have to be black or you don't have to be white. Let's just, let's just get along. You know, but the reality is, I am black and yeah. you are white and, yeah. and this person is Chinese and this person is Arab and we have, we, we have a background, we have a culture, we have a history, but we also have something to offer and we need each other. Every single racial yes. um, group and so on and so yes. forth. I, in, in Ghana here, there was a, a certain, um, we had a certain minority group in Ghana that um, disproportionately um, were creating a lot of in injustices against the local Ghanaians. And, um, and I begin to feel a prejudice towards that group based upon the injustices that were constantly being perpetuated. And um, all of a sudden, um, I, I, I was in, I think I was in Finland, and I was in this meeting, and I was in a meeting with a lot of, um, a lot of people from that minority group. And as I was in that meeting, I, I felt a strong conviction that I needed to deal with the prejudice that was on the inside of me because regardless of what I've seen on the news and what I've seen firsthand, every single member of that minority group cannot be guilty of that same crime. And, and so as I begin to do that, it, it changed my whole perspective and not just changed my whole perspective. I got to the place to where I wanted to learn more about them, just like I wanted to learn about every other racial group that, that, that I worked with. I began to start, I even took a vacation, um, you know, in a, in a country um, with that, with that synonymous, with that, that racial group. I mean, ate foods, learned culture, so many different things. 
and and now one of my one of my um a good friends, one of my new good friends, comes from that same ethnic group, and I am mobilizing with them. I'm planning with them. We're doing so many things that's crossing cultural lines, crossing religious lines. But I, I just think we have to we we have to be open to new considerations, yes. and we have to be open to coming out of our own cultural um, comfort zones so that we can understand, you know, other people. And I think that programs and strategies to start at, at, at the very youngest ages to implement that yes. is so important. You know, I, I think, and, and the way that we have to implement it is not just, okay, we're just going to all jump into one big, you know, melting pot of, of crayons and, you know, we'll all be mixed together. That may happen, you know, figuratively, you know, and, you know, that's a good thing figuratively. But I think the first thing is that we all be, be able to appreciate who we are individually. Yes. And we all be able to understand our own purpose, our own identity. Now, when I understand that, I respect what, what, whatever God has placed in me to do, but I also respect your purpose. And I also respect your destiny as well. And now because I respect me and I respect you, we can work together yes. fully. Yes. I am so thankful for the 20 plus years that we have partnered together. Uh, we've modeled not just diversity, but inclusion on this deep, deep heart level. Yeah. And, you know, you just brought me to tears again today. And I am so thankful, not just for your knowledge, but your heart and your partnership, because I am convinced that we are better together than we are separately. And when yes. our hearts break for the suffering of others, and we truly value the intrinsic worth of every human being, not only can they heal, but if enough of us do this, it can begin to shift the way our nation functions. It can begin to shift yeah. even policy and legislation, not because we're legislating hearts, but because we are in a place that a culture of validation is taking place on such a deep level that we just do life differently. And it cannot yeah. be legislated by law, even though it's good to have legislation, but it's motivated by a heart of love That's and right. validation. Thank you so That's much, right. Lewis. I love you. Uh, from the bottom of my heart, I celebrate who you are. I celebrate how you're touching the nations of the earth and how you've impacted my life for good. I value you and love you. I value you and love you too. Thank you so much. It was an honor to be a part. I want to thank you for listening and encourage you to become a part of the Stop Devaluation movement. Be sure to like and follow hashtag Stop Devaluation on social media, subscribe to the YouTube channel, and visit StopDevaluation.com for more information and free resources. You can help spread the movement by sharing with others, leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, and most of all, by living a courageous lifestyle of using your power for good. Go out and value someone today. Your life matters, and you can make the world a better place. One word, one choice, 
one action of validation at a time.